Good morning. Let's pray together. So, Father, thank you for this privilege of coming together and worshiping. And I do pray that as we approach your word, that you would open up our hearts and our minds to be encouraged where we need to be encouraged and strengthened where we need to be strengthened, but also convicted where we need to be convicted. So we give you thanks for the power of the Holy Spirit that's at work in our lives, at work in our church. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Isaiah chapter 35, starting in verse 1. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eye of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunts of jackals, where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there. It shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they should not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, or they shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. And together the grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of the Lord remains forever. Well, I trust we all know what time it is. It is the most wonderful time of the year, right? It's the happiest season of all where the kids will jingle belling and everyone's telling you be of good cheer. And uh, there's parties for hosting, marshmallows for toasting and caroling out in the snow, right? All that is, is good stuff. But it's actually, for the church, the most wonderful time of the year because it's the season of Advent. In the season of Advent, the four weeks leading up to Christmas, the four Sundays leading up to, uh, to Christmas, and this is the time that we celebrate and await. We celebrate the first coming of Christ marked by his birth. But we also prepare our hearts as we await for the glorious return of Christ in his second coming. So we are now in the third week of Advent, and we've been working our ways through various passages out of Isaiah, because Isaiah spoke of this hope, of this Messiah who was to come, this Messiah who would bring a full restoration of the heavens and the earth back to the glory that was intended, but was marred by the fall due to Adam and Eve's devastating sin in the garden. So as we come this morning to Isaiah 35, let's do a quick review of Old Testament history. Okay, this will be a a minute long, so here's the review. So Isaiah was ministering to the Israelites, this is the people of God in the Old Testament. At that time, you could say that they were one nation under God, or rather one nation under Yahweh. 
Okay, but they did not do the under Yahweh very well because of the rebellion, which caused inward strife and fighting. Therefore, they did not do the under nation very well either. And so this nation of 12 tribes splits into two nations. So in the north, we have Israel with 10 tribes. In the south, we have Judah with two tribes. And Isaiah is ministering in his lifetime. He witnesses the downfall of the Israelites to the Assyrian army. And the scriptures are quite clear that the reason for the downfall was the rebellion of God's people. And then during, uh, during Isaiah's lifetime, he was ministering in the south to Judah. But he was ministering as the prophet in the time where destruction was on their way. The army of Babylon was growing in strength and would soon be on their doorstep to take them into captivity. And so, what's the role of Isaiah, the prophet? What's the role of a prophet? Well, let me illustrate it this way. So, um, my son Ty, who's now 13, when he was just a little guy, he uh, did something bad, right? And it was, it was toddler bad, not a big deal. So I'm like, Ty, you need to come to dad. Ty's response shakes his head and, and starts to back up. I'm like, Ty, you need to come to dad right now. Ty's response shakes his head and keeps it in reverse. And at this point, uh, Ty's older brothers, Peyton and Quentin, step in as the prophets. Like, Ty, you need to go to dad right now. You need to listen, obey, or it's going to get worse for you. You're going to be in huge trouble. Ty's response. So at that point, Peyton and Quentin take Ty by the arms and they drag him to me, lay him at my feet. And so there's Ty in a heap of rebellion and a heap of trouble. And that pretty much sums up the Israelites and the role of the prophets in the Old Testament. The Israelites were far too often because of their rebellion in a heap of rebellion and a heap of trouble. And often their sin had to do with um, idolatry and hypocrisy. So with hypocrisy, the Israelites would go through the motions of their religion, but with their hearts far from God. As one of my seminary professors who taught Old Testament put it well, the Israelites, their failure was they did not embrace the covenant from the heart. Did not embrace the covenant from the heart. So the sin of idolatry that the Israelites fell into, they would pursue these false gods of the other nations in an attempt towards security and towards pleasure. But obviously these false gods um, would take them away from the heart of the one true God. So what we find is um, the role of the prophet is to seek to drag the Israelites back to the Lord, reminding them to obey the Lord's law. It's a good law. And reminding them that God is faithful to them and that if they will obey the Lord, God will bless them so that they would be a blessing to the nations. But if they rebel, what they would experience is judgment and curse. And that's actually what we find in Isaiah chapter 34. Um, this chapter right before Isaiah 35 is a chapter of judgment on the nations. We see in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 34. Draw near, O nations, and hear. Give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all the host. He has devoted them to destruction and has given them over for slaughter. 
yikes, right? This judgment against the nations. But, but the Israelites, they also failed to be faithful to the Lord. So as we end in chapter 34, the question is, but what about God's people? Will God finally turn his back on his people? Will he abandon them? Will he turn his back on his promise that they would be his treasured possession among all the nations of the earth? Would God turn his back on the covenant with Abraham that he would bless him, cause the Israelites to be a great nation, and eventually bring them to a glorious promised land? Would he turn his back on the covenant with David that from him would come a king in an everlasting kingdom? The answer is, thankfully, no. And as we get to Isaiah 35, we see the hope. I, I love it a few, weeks ago, a few weeks ago, as Bill was explaining Isaiah, he said, Isaiah is full of judgment, but with hope sprinkled in. And this is what we find this morning. Isaiah 35 is a chapter of hope that is sprinkled in, and it's profound hope. So the hope of Isaiah 35 is in huge contrast to chapter 34 of Isaiah, and it's this. That God's grace will triumph, and when it does, the current sorrows will be transformed into everlasting joy. And so with that, verse 30, uh, chapter 35, verse 1. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. So we see here um, in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, wilderness is mentioned quite often because God's people are wandering in the wilderness on the way to the promised land. And so wilderness is always in contrast to the promised land. The wilderness was often a time of testing. They're being tested by the Lord. It's a time of struggle. It's a time when they were uh, faced various pressures by other nations. And so oftentimes in this time of testing, they grumble and they fail. And so throughout the rest of the scripture, when we see references to wilderness, it's also, or it's, it's often um, synonymous with, with testing, with trials, struggle. And what we find is Isaiah gives us a fascinating contrast of this wilderness as he starts to talk about um, that uh, the crocus will blossom abundantly. The crocus would be the first flower, or the first flower that uh, blooms in the spring. So this beautiful glimpse of hope. And he talks about the glory and majesty of Lebanon, Carmel, and Sharon. And all of these would be places, uh, places that were glorious, that were beautiful, uh, whether coastal areas or mountainous um, places where there was great beauty and fruitfulness. So Isaiah is painting this picture of the glory of the Lord that will transform a wasteland into an oasis. And I had a bit of a, a small taste of this back in 1996. So 1996 was the year that Tiffany and I were married, and I was in charge of the honeymoon plans. So I called a travel agent, and I let her know, okay, this is what I have to work with. So she did some research, got back to me. She said, hey, good news. Um, how about St. Thomas Virgin Island for a week? Bad news is a hurricane just hit there about six months ago. So it's 50% off, so it fits your budget. She said, but, you know, um, 
I'm pretty confident that the island will get cleaned up by the time of your honeymoon. You should be okay. And I'm an optimist, so I book it. So the day comes, we fly in to the island, we get on a bus and start driving towards our resort. And I will tell you, joy turned to sorrow as the island was devastated, trash and destruction everywhere. It is as if the hurricane hit the day before. And uh, Tiffany and I look at each other, we're like, is this it? Is this what we've been waiting for? Is this what we've been longing for? Um, and I'll say, you know, I should have felt a bit more compassion for those on the island, but that um, emotion was eclipsed when I looked over and saw my brand new bride on the brink of tears, and I wanted to hurt someone. So we keep driving through um, essentially what looked like a landfill, and we finally get to the gates. And the gates open, and I kid you not, I think I heard the angel sing the hallelujah chorus. It was a glorious contrast. Green, lush uh, grass, beautiful flowers and trees and plants, uh, pristine beach, beautiful blue water. Um, It was what we had longed for. It's what we were hoping for, which actually sounds really good right now as it's like 25 degrees out and, you know, anywhere from... Uh, one to 64 inches of snow in Kansas, who knows? Um, but the, uh, but what Isaiah is painting here is he is painting this contrast, wanting his people and us to long for this glorious land that's on the other side, so to speak. And the reason this land is glorious is what awaits them. And verse two says, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. And so What does the glory of the Lord mean? It's a loaded term that speaks of God's manifest presence with his people. There's there's this great book, Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. Highly recommend it. And Michael Reeves um, speaks of this glory of the Lord. And he talks about how the glory of the Lord is both a brightness, light, radiance. But it's also a person. And what we find sprinkled in Isaiah are passages of hope of this glorious presence of the Lord. For instance, Isaiah 60, verses 1 and 2. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. So here, Reeves says it this way. He says, God's glory, his nature and character is like a pure and dazzling light radiating outward and shining forth, driving away the thick darkness. And Isaiah looks forward to this future day when the presence of the Lord will be revealed in more glory. And then we find, as we turn the pages of the New Testament to Luke chapter 2, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. So here it is, this glory of the Lord that overcomes this darkness at night. And what we know is that this glory was also perfectly manifested in the person of Jesus Christ. Reeves says it this way, The sun, the light of the world, is the splendor of the Father, the shining out of the Father's bright glory. As such... Jesus is the glory and weight 
of God. And so what Jesus is shining out is the very love of the Father. And where do we see this glory, this love of the Trinity most profoundly demonstrated? We see it at the cross. And here's what Reeves goes on to say. On the cross, we see the glorification of the glory of God, the deepest revelation of the very heart of God. And it is all about laying down his life to give life, to bear fruit. The reformer, John Calvin, so now he's quoting Calvin, which makes this even better, right? So the reformer, John Calvin, wrote that in the cross of Christ, as in a magnificent theater, the inestimable goodness of God is displayed before the whole world. In all the creatures, indeed, both high and low, the glory of God shines. But nowhere has it shone more brightly than in the cross. Because it's at the cross that we see the glory of the Lord that overcomes darkness and also secures God's people for eternal life. So in light of this hope of God's glory that will be manifested to the people, what's the response? We see the response in verse 3 of Isaiah 35. So strengthen the weak hands and make firm feeble, uh, feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. So we see this language of, of strengthen your weak hands and feeble knees and anxious hearts. It's all imagery of one who is weak in faith, who is discouraged, who is anxious. And this would make sense in the context of their day as the Israelites um, are worried about oppressive nations around them. It's looming over their head like a dark cloud. And what did they need to hear? They needed to hear the promise of Isaiah 4. That be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. This is very similar language to what the Lord told to Joshua. As Joshua took over from Moses, leading the Israelites towards the promised land, God commanded Joshua, similar language, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. But how about for us? Um, how do we apply this? We don't exactly wake up in the morning worrying about the Edomites. So how would we apply Isaiah? Well, Hebrews in chapter 12 actually applies this passage for us. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 12, Hebrews quotes Isaiah 35, where he says, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. But here's how the author of Hebrews connects it. And so feel free to turn to Hebrews 12, but I'm just going to summarize the chapter in this way. Because the, the author of Hebrews is laying out an encouraging argument. He's saying... Lay off all the weight and the sin that entangles you and run with endurance this Christian life, this race that is marked out for you. Looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, scoring in his shame and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And then the argument of Hebrews continues. Consider Jesus who endured such sin and hostility, even to the point of shedding his blood, and let that encourage us when we're weary and faint-hearted. But the argument of Hebrews continues. 
that. But when we are experiencing the wilderness, so to speak, of sin and struggle and temptation, he said, recognize that God is with you, but he is there as your heavenly father. And you will experience difficulty. You will experience, um, the way Hebrews puts it, you're going to experience pain and not pleasure. But God is with you and it's for your own good because the goal is God is working out holiness in our lives. And so what we experience at times is fatherly discipline in the language of Hebrews is towards the fruit of righteousness in our lives. And then after laying all that out, Hebrews 12 says, therefore, in light of, or you say it this way, therefore, in light of Jesus, that he endured the cross and that the fact that he secured the love of the Father on the behalf of sons and daughters, in light of that, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet. In other words, run with endurance. But what about when we are weak in our faith, when we are discouraged, when we are anxious? You know, as a college pastor, I uh, have a um, meet with college students from time to time who are in angst and uh, and discouraged at times, uh, sometimes barely holding on to their faith. And oftentimes what they're wrestling about is this. Okay, if it is true that God is perfectly good and perfectly powerful, then why all the wilderness? Why the desert? Why the suffering? Why the pain? Why the struggle? And in those moments, what, what they do not need from me is a pat answer. What they need is the acknowledgement and the affirmation Yeah, the wilderness is real, and it's not the way it's supposed to be. See, Adam and Eve sinned. They were in a glorious garden, and they sinned, and they got us all kicked out of the garden. And now we are in the wilderness. And in the wilderness, nothing is as it should be. If Adam and Eve would have been faithful, we would not have to struggle. But they were not faithful, so we struggle. At times, it's with With death, it is with loneliness, anxiety, depression, mental and physical illness, relational hurt, confusion over identity and gender, substance abuse, um, various forms of addiction. The list goes on and on, right? We're in the wilderness. But here's the hope and here's the promise that um, God himself entered into the wilderness with us. Emmanuel, God with us. Christ took on flesh. Jesus spent his whole life in the wilderness. At one particular moment in time was um, in the wilderness with Satan as Satan was tempting, uh, tempting him. Satan had hoped that Jesus would be just like Adam and just like the Israelites and fail to be faithful. But this one was different. Jesus was faithful in the wilderness all the way to the cross. And so what Christ did is he provided a way out of the wilderness by way of the cross. Now, until he returns, we're still in the wilderness. We're not out of it yet. But we do have the promise that God is with us and will bring us out into good pastures. And Isaiah 35, chapter 4, holds a powerful promise. Behold, your God will come. He will come and save you. And if we could go back to Isaiah's time, to the people of God back then, and bring our list of Christmas songs, I guarantee this, they are not going to pick Santa Baby. 
That will not be the one that they sing. But rather, here's, I'm going to bet the farm on this one, that the one they will sing is this. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall ransom or shall come to thee, O Israel. What a promise. And so Isaiah is painting this picture of this Messiah, Emmanuel, who is to come. And Isaiah says when he comes, his kingdom is going to be announced with uh, miracles and healings. And we find this in verse 5, that when the Messiah comes, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunts of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. But when the Messiah came, the world had a hard time recognizing him. Son of God, born in Bethlehem in lowly conditions. So when the people, when Jesus entered the scene, people expected a military king or a political figure to, to you know, flex his muscles. In fact, even John the Baptist was perplexed. He told his disciples, and, and Hannah read this passage earlier out of, out of Matthew. I'm going to take this up out of Luke 7. That John the Baptist had his disciples go to Jesus, and they essentially they asked him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? If I can use sports lingo, essentially they're saying, um, hey, when the Messiah comes, we're expecting 110%, but we're only seeing about 80%. Okay. But what they failed to recognize is that Jesus was establishing his kingdom. But this kingdom would start small, like a tiny mustard seed, but eventually would grow and spread across the face of the earth. 110% is coming, but it will arrive at Jesus' second coming. And so Luke records that after the disciples asked Jesus that question, in that hour, Luke says, in that very hour, Jesus went out and he healed diseases, and he cast out evil spirits, and he restored sight to the blind. And then he turns to the disciples and he says this in Luke seven twenty two. He says, go tell John... What you've seen and heard, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. Jesus is saying, look closely, I'm the one. I'm the one Isaiah spoke of, and I'm demonstrating the power of this kingdom to bring people out of darkness and into light, both physically and spiritually. And Jesus, this kingdom will demonstrate the power of a radical and far-reaching transformation of the heavens and the earth to the glory of an oasis. And verses 8 through 10 gives us a wonderful glimpse of what will happen when Jesus returns. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they should not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be on their heads. 
They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. So Isaiah refers to a highway in multiple times in his book. But this is a special highway. This is a highway that leads God's people out of a desert and into a glorious mountain. You know, we do get, um, we do get a bit of a taste of this as Kansans, and I, I don't want to be trite with this at all, but uh, this highway that uh, gives us a taste would be I-70, right, on, on the way um, through, uh, through western Kansas on the way to the glorious mountains of Colorado. And every year, my family takes a vacation, uh, gets away to Estes Park for a couple of days. Um, and so I love the trip, but there's one particular time that I love most about this trip, and it's when we finally get to Colorado Highway 7, and we're at the edge of the mountain, and so we know that we're going to make the drive up the mountain. And in that spot, every time I have this ritual, I play a song. And the song is by Rich Mullins, I See You. I play it at the exact same time. It's so bad that my kids are to the point where they completely mock it in that moment. They're like, oh, here it comes. Dad's about to play a stupid song. Um, and deep down, I think they actually really love it, but they can't admit that. Um, but what's perfect in that moment as we're heading up the mountain, it's, it's the music, it's the lyrics, everything seems fitting. And I can't sing, so I'm not going to attempt it, but I'll try to make the, the song recognizable. Okay? It says, Lord, you're leading me with a cloud by day, and then in the night, the glow of a burning flame. Okay, that's imagery of the Exodus. And what's fascinating is Isaiah 35 is also given the imagery of an Exodus. But it's if, as if Isaiah is saying, you remember the Exodus in the past. This will be a far more glorious Exodus that awaits. And the song goes on. Now, with, when the chorus hits, you have to know this is the 90s, so um, Rich Mullins was rocking the echo. So, and everywhere I go, I see you. 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 Okay? And you take my hand and you wash it clean. I know the promised land is light years ahead of me. Y'all probably want to sing, don't you? No? It's just me? And everywhere I go, I see you. 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 Okay. You get all that. But just imagine, windows are down, you smell the fresh pine, river running by the, by the uh, base of the mountain. We start the climb up the mountain, and everywhere we get the glory, the splendor of the mountain in front of us. But this is just a taste, right? Isaiah is painting this picture of this glorious mountain. I mean, when we're going up the mountain, it, we, yes, there's this moment of, you know, Toto, we're not in Kansas anymore. But it really is just a taste. Because technically, we know, is God everywhere? Yes. But there is something about certain spaces and places where it seems like the majesty of God is, really, is more present, right, um, from our human vantage point. Um, but what we know is this that a day is coming when everywhere we go, we will see the glorious majesty of Mount Zion, of the, of the Lord's glory. And there is something about mountains that, in the scriptures. And so Isaiah has given us this picture of a pilgrimage of exiles from a desert to Zion, where we will see his majesty and his glory in its fullness. And Isaiah tells us a few more things about this highway 
It's a way of holiness. Nothing unclean shall be on it. Only The only persons that can be on this would be those that are washed in the blood of the Lamb. It's unmistakably clear. It is free of danger. No ravenous beast shall be on this. Nothing can keep the exiles from making it to the other side. And this is a road for the ransomed, for the redeemed. It's a road for those who are bought with the precious blood of Christ. And Isaiah says um, this road is called the way of holiness. So it begs a question for us this morning. Do we take this holiness seriously now? I mentioned the two sins of the Israelites that led to their downfall, hypocrisy and idolatry. Hypocrisy is going through the motions of religion, but having a heart that's far from God. And oftentimes it shows up in our life when our, what we say we believe does not actually match our behaviors. And so maybe this question this morning, do you love holiness? Do you love holiness? Or do you see acts of holiness as a way to get God to bless you? So the Holy Spirit's goal is not just about getting us to perform for Christ. No, the, whole, the goal of the Holy Spirit is to get us to delight in Christ and find our joy in him. And that our life would be an overflow of that. And if that's the case, then we'll see the idols for what they are. Idols. Those, those things that, uh, that draw our attention and we pursue them towards pleasure and towards security. But the truth about our idols, they always lead us back into the desert. I think there is a connection between holiness and beauty. If we think about holiness, we think about where God has manifested his presence. They are beautiful places, right? Garden of Eden, before sin hit, the new heavens and new earth. The beauty of the the way the scriptures paint that. But then anytime we see idolatry or we see sin, what we see is wilderness and we see desert. But the truth of the matter is that when we seek to live lives of holiness, it will make relationships beautiful. But when we fall into idolatry, it will bring us back to the desert every time. But Jesus gave us a way out of the desert And as we come to the table this morning, I want us to consider verse 10. It's a beautiful verse to lead us to the table this morning. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away the ransomed of the Lord, the redeemed. This table is a visual reminder that the Lord has ransomed his people, has bought us back by the very body and blood of Christ. And Isaiah Isaiah talks about this, this time in the future when we will travel to Mount Zion singing. But this morning we get a taste of it as we come down the aisles singing. It's a glimpse of what Christ has done for us and what he will carry through for us. On the night that our Lord was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, given for you. 
Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup. And after giving thanks, gave this to his disciples. And he said, This cup is the blood of the new covenant, shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And the apostle adds, As often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. So, Father, as we come to this table, I pray that you would help us to more fully see your glory. Pray that you would strengthen us in our faith. Pray that you would help us to grow in our knowledge of your glorious grace in a way that would secure us in hope. Pray that you would nurture our faith in such a way that we would love you more deeply and love others as well. And so, Father, we pray that you would take these common elements, this bread and this juice, and that you would set it aside in such a way that we know that you are truly with us. Pray that you would be glorified. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.